Hello and welcome to episode six of The Shortlist, the official podcast of the Federation of Bloodstock Agents Australia, who of course are the representative body for all bloodstock agents in Australia, upholding a strict set of standards and ethics to make sure that every time you go and buy a horse with an FBAA agent, you are getting absolute top shelf advice from an ethical business person. And speaking of ethical business persons and people, I have two of them with us today. Joining us on episode six, and an episode that's going to have a little bit of an international flavour, is Will Johnson from William Johnson Bloodstock and Jim Clark from Clark Bloodstock. Gentlemen, hello. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having us, Shark. It's great to be here uh, with, with you and Jim. Thanks, Shark. Looking forward to it. Two of the younger members of the Federation. It's, look, let's, uh, let's be kind to some of the veterans in the federation but you guys probably do have youth on your side it's fair to say what attracted you to getting involved with the the federation and and how did you see it beneficial to furthering your businesses jim i'll start with you well i've always been aware of the federation i guess going right back to when i started my career in the industry a long time before i became a bloodstock agent and i guess you know, I did law at university, so it's always been in the back of my mind that to be a member of a of a um, a body, an industry body that upholds a certain level of integrity, is um, I guess an obvious thing that that, to, that you should do. And um, I was uh, always intending to become a part of it when the opportunity came up after starting my business. What about you, Will? Uh, yeah, very very much like Jim, and also much like uh, a licensed real estate agent. Or someone sells you, you know, financial advice. As um, as with selling horses, I don't see it's how that is too different to you know house or stock. So being a part of a body that that has come together, and you touched on it in your introduction, um, you know, to uphold ethic ethical standards and um, be a united body representing people that that buy and sell horses on behalf of um you know the wider public is something i you know wanted wanted to be a part of and want to see um grow and continue to make the steps that have already been made over the last 12 months to really identifying the group as a proactive um association now, i think that's something that uh, the feedback we've had from this podcast in particular and from uh, press releases like the recent one about the uh, the pattern and upholding the pattern and why that's important as the Federation takes more of a, a forward stance in in getting out there amongst the racing community and, and letting people know about what they're doing and, and how the Federation views certain issues. I think it's only a positive and I've had a lot of feedback through this podcast about uh, people who've bought horses in the past either to race or breed and saying, oh, gee, I'm, I'm going to change the way I think about uh, engaging and and dealing with agents. So I think that's a real positive. I think uh, with you two gentlemen, two of the newer faces in the scene in Australia, people are automatically curious about backgrounds and everything else. And, and Jim, you touched on yours through law and coming through that angle, but your family, I believe, have sort of always dabbled in a bit of breeding and, and the racehorses have been close at heart while you grew up. What drew, drew you to, to making that I guess, career transition, leaving law behind and heading into bloodstock and racing? Yeah, well, I guess you're right, Shark. I, my family have been involved at, at a very hobbyist level. Um, I grew up in the country in Queensland, did a lot of riding, and my father 
tipped around with a few mares and bred to race and um, had a lot of slow ones. And he had one one nice horse eventually called Rudy that was the group winner. Um, so I always sort of, I guess, had the appetite for the industry. I went to the races from a young age and loved it and um, followed it very closely through high school. And when I finished school and started university, um, you know, racing and, and breeding was something I followed. Uh, and my part-time jobs were riding track work for, for a trainer called Sean Dwyer up here in, in Queensland at the time. And I never really had any intention of going and becoming a barrister or a lawyer or, or, or going into practice in that field. And when I finished my degree, I went and worked at Peter Snowden and kind of just went on the journey from there. And um, yeah, racing breeding's been been my life sort of for a long time now. And I'm very pleased that that's the decision that I made from a young age. You're a graduate of the Godolphin Flying Start program, and, and that's churned out sort of an endless stream of really talented uh, ex- young experts, I guess you'd say, in the not only the, the bloodstock field, but the racing field. How did, would you describe that experience briefly? Yeah, I mean, it was phenomenal. I, I came across that program when I was finishing high school. I think I was in year 12 and there was an article in The Australian about it. And funny enough, Henry Field was... Um, I think fairly prominent in that article was one of the first students on the course. So I was far too young to be and far too inexperienced to be applying for it then. But it was something that I, I firmly had my eye on right from, I guess, its its first inception. Um, and to see what that first group have gone on to do, guys like Henry Field, um, uh, is, uh, is, I guess, a testament to how successful the program's been. So it's something I, I conscientiously worked towards for a number of years before I applied and subsequently was accepted on the course. And it's had a huge influence on my career. Of course, there's other members of the Federation. Um, Craig Roundsfell, of course, who's the president. Uh, Andy Williams, to name a few. So it's, um, you know, it's been, I guess, and I'm fortunate to have worked for Godolphin, um, since the course, but I think it's Sheikh Mohammed's will become Sheikh Mohammed's greatest legacy to the industry. Yeah, it's a pretty phenomenal course, and you know, as you say, just touch on a few of those graduates. Incredible the things they've gone on to do. Will, what about your background? I was looking at your website this week, and I reckon, apart from being the schnazziest uh, bloodstock <laughs> agent website going around, uh, it sort of kicks off your introduction into. The picture as an assistant trainer with Roger Varian, but you don't just lob up into a job like that. Tell us how you got involved in racing. Yeah, so I grew up uh, in Euroa on the family property Ealing Park, and my, my parents ran that stud with my grandparents. Um, my great grandfather had had Vane, you know, through his racing and breeding days, and that sort of led on to them having uh, a broodmare property in northeast Victoria breeding a number of horses. So I grew up in the vet shed, the repro side of things with Angus McKinnon and always thought that I saw his lifestyle and thought being a vet wasn't going to be, going to be my cup of tea. Uh, so through the end of um, my secondary schooling and university work, work for trainers at Caulfield in the mornings before going off to study a marketing degree in the afternoons. And then as soon as I graduated, I was very keen to get overseas and expand my knowledge. Um, And whilst looking at the Dali Flying Start, uh, I thought I needed a little bit more experience before contemplating applying and then went and worked for Roger Varian. And then that sort of led led itself to then working for Hubie de Berg rather than, you know, going down Jim's route, but um, sort of drew out my experience 
learning how the, the English train horses and then how the Irish trade horses uh, just before coming back to Australia just on two years ago. I think as well as that international experience, and that kind of leads us on into our main topic today, but what's impressed me, and I'm sure it'll impress all those listening, is that the level of success that you both have had at, at a young age and relatively uh, new with your businesses being out there in public. Will, you were involved in sourcing the VRC Derby winner warning, and, and Jim, just this year, you had four runners that, that you assisted in the purchase of running in the Group 1 Champagne Stakes. It's we're talking about some pretty heady moments pretty early in, in your careers, boys. Um, how, do you, how do you handle that sort of early success or that early, uh, those early wins, I guess, at Group 1 level? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. I don't think something you probably... I think we've both been lucky to have had some nice horses early in our careers. So it's probably when we look back at in time that we realise you know, how lucky it we were to have great days out but you know with horse racing every every year that's another crop and it it's another chance you know there's only one golden super winner a year and if you think of your lifespan of a career buying horses over 40 or 50 years you only really get one in your one in 40 chance of winning a race like that the melbourne cup or you know the arc de triomphe whatever race you want to set your sights on so I think you, as, as soon as you've had a nice horse, it's very much about moving on to the next and trying to identify, you know, the the next ho- the next horse that will hopefully, you know, get to those sorts of lofty standards. I want to talk to you both about the international market and 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 uh, you know mainly about the tried horse trade because we've seen probably in the last twenty years in Australia that has just gone from strength to strength. The idea that you can buy out of Europe or Japan, you know, ready-made horses that can be bolted into an Australian environment and chase major cups and the like. It's not a new phenomenon. It's something, you know, Lloyd Williams and owners like that have been doing for for decades longer than the 2000s, but we haven't really seen an explosion like this in in the thoroughbred market in Australia for, for some time. Jim, what do you think the Australian owners and trainers are so attracted to to international tried horses well there's no doubt that um you know distance is further than a mile in my opinion they're superior to the horses that we breed here in australia and it's the fundamental reason for that is because here our stallion rosters and our broodmare population are dominated by speed and and precocious two-year-old speed so that's what the market here is is breeding um and that's uh, the intention is for them to breed for the Golden Slipper, not for the Melbourne Cup. So as the uh, import of European horses has increased, the success has increased. There's been greater numbers of them coming over. I think people have got a lot more clued up as to the types of horses that they should be buying, not only for the Cups races, but also for, you know, a benchmark 88 race at Randwick on a Saturday. And you're talking about two different horses and two different price points. But fundamentally, I think those horses that come over from Europe, um, you know, they're bred to run a distance. They're bred to excel as three, four, five, and six-year-olds, not as precocious two-year-olds. And on top of that, when they're purchased as tried horses, they've had a very solid grounding, a very solid fitness base from racing and training in Europe and being ridden the way that they ride races and track work in Europe and that being up a hill that being long sustained stamina as opposed to sit and sprint type racing that we have here. So 
not only are they breeding horses for you know 2000 meter plus races they're conditioning them to to excel in those conditions as well so that's why i guess the, the phenomenon as you say has, has, has started and, and continued to, to to grow over the last sort of 10 years um and i can't see any sign of that stopping i guess racing in europe the prize money is far inferior to it is in australia so you've always got motivated sellers and in the same vein you've got motivated purchases down here because for saturday racing in ramwick and, and flemington the prize money for the 2-4 race is the same as it is for the 1400 meter race uh, benchmark grade so um you know even though that the cost of those horses has increased um i still think you know the economics of buying a horse and putting it on a plane and bringing it down here still make a lot of sense considering the prize money that they race for can you see a day when the australian breeding industry will be able to turn that around and, and produce more horses that are competitive with those european breads or are we pretty much set in our ways now look i can't see that happening in the um in the short to medium term personally because i i, I as a sort of mentioned before I, I don't think it's just about the breeding I, I also think it's about the conditioning of them you know these horses are race sparingly up there in the early years you know two and three year olds most of the time they've only had a handful of starts by the time they get to their four-year-old season but every morning they've done two canners up warren hill and um you know they've, they've sort of got this ingrained stamina that's just been um, developed over over years of of that type of training so I don't think it's just the breeding. I think it's also the way that the horses are conditioned and to, to change that so that horses bred in this part of the world uh, are as good as, as those horses in uh, in the Northern Hemisphere or in Europe in particular would require a, a change in philosophy in the way that we train down here as well as our breeding. Well, that's something that conditioning side that you've seen firsthand working with the Varian Stable would you agree that it's the conditioning plays as much of a, a role as as the bloodlines for these horses that we see come to Australia? Yeah, I couldn't agree more with um, with Jim Jim's comments there, and he touched on Warren Hill, which uh, for the listeners out there is approximately nine hundred meters long, but it it rises um, forty five meters. Uh, you know, if you cut through the side of the hill, and having ridden it, you just get a feel for how. Uh, how difficult it is for young horses and how much aerobic fitness uh, it gets in their legs. Not to say that that particular gallops like one in Chantilly, but, um, you know, the longest sustained galloping leads to that um, that base fitness. And I often shook my head, you know, with the way Roger trains sprinters and, you know, putting too much endurance and slow work into their legs. Uh, whereas I'm sure if you went down to Randwick on a Tuesday morning or Flemington, you know, they're only working over, you know, four, six, eight hundred metres in, in a very quick, short, sharp um, spring coil type of workout. And if like just touching on the breed, if you look at the most influential sirelines in Australia and particularly Danehill and Invincible Spirit, you know, they're both European sprinters. So... Is it a case of um, the Europeans just producing slow horses? I don't think that's the case. I think that they're, they're probably trained to be more dour, but the, inherently there is a lot of speed up there as well, which has you know created the breed we have here today.
along with, you know, a couple of the American sidelines. And I guess that's something that they're looking at more, isn't it, through Europe, is injecting more of that speed. We see some of our stallions in Australia going up and, and having Northern Hemisphere seasons up there. There seems to be more of a focus now at meetings like Royal Ascot on some of those sharper two-year-old races. Is there a bit of a changing in the guard in Europe? Do they feel the need for speed a little bit more, Will? Yes, most definitely. Even the last five to ten years, you know, the commercial outlook, particularly when an organisation such as uh, Coolmore and Bally Doyle have, have such a stranglehold, and Godolphin for that matter, over the, the middle distance races, given they own Galileo, Dabawi, Shamadal, you know, the list goes on. So as a commercial breeder, it's very difficult to um, go up against the broodmare bands and the sire lines of those of those studs. So a lot more emphasis has been on those um, Royal Ascot two-year-old winners, um, you know, pre-morning winners in France, um, Phoenix Stakes winners in Ireland that aren't always owned by those, you know, bigger powerhouses. So, um, yes, there's definitely a, a shape of horse that's now coming that's much more like the Aussie you know, square, strong, sprinting type. And that's more or less just farms, smaller farms and breeders over there realising that to compete, they have to create something that's appealing for for, for the market. And that's a, that's a faster horse. It was interesting. I went and had a look at some stallions, the, the overseas contingent at Godolphin recently and Earthlight, when he walked out, he wouldn't have been out of place in any Australian stud. If he said you were, he was Australian bred, you would have said, yeah, okay, fair enough. He's he's very much in that mould, powerful, uh, short-coupled two-year-old type. So, yeah, maybe there will be a, a changing of the guard up there in Europe. And, and Jim, maybe the answer then to Australia producing more stayers is not in the breeding of them, but perhaps it lies with trainers like, Matt Kamani and Archie Alexander, who have had that experience in Europe and the UK and have those stamina building theories already ingrained in them, if they can get the right horses and train them in Australia with that mindset, that might be our our pathway forward to, to holding off a few of these raiders. Yeah, absolutely. And both, both those guys you mentioned have really done very well with those middle distance type horses, I guess, having a relationship with some of the the European owners and the, the bigger importers of horses from Europe certainly helps. But, um, you know, it's not surprising to see that a lot of their success has come in those those middle and long distance races. So, um, and I mean, look, racing such an international sport now. I mean, you, you know, I met Will in the UK when he was working for Roger Berry and I was working for Godolphin. Um, and we've both come back here, set up, you know, as, as agents and both become great mates. Similarly, you know, it's, it's um, not unusual to find a, you know, an Irish guy training in France or, uh, you know, Nassim Dilmi's down here as a, you know, sort of high-level role with James Cummings, Frenchman. So, you know, the mix of people all over the world in um, in this industry is is phenomenal and, and really in sort of pre-COVID times, you see the same people at Saratoga as you would in um, at Goffs in Ireland. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I wouldn't be surprised to see more Europeans coming down to Australia like Archie, like Matt Kamani and, and setting up shop and, and having a crack and, and really targeting those those middle distance races and hopefully bring some good horses and good owners with them. 
yeah, my word. It's one of those beautiful things of the sport, isn't it? And the global nature of it. You get the swapping of ideas as well as the swapping of horses going for carnivals and and for stud and, and breeding purposes as well. So yeah, it's a beautiful game. Speaking of ideas, I want to pick your brains a bit, boys. So I've got a little pad here. And, and as you know, we've been involved in some overseas purchases as well, but you're always learning and you're always looking to steal ideas from people. And you boys have both been successful in this field. Tell me what you look for when a client comes to you and says, well, Jim, I want a horse from Europe that I can take through to a high-level staying race in Australia. I don't have a big budget. I'm not going to go and buy a proven group horse. In your mind, the wheels start turning. What are some of the top things that, that you're already thinking about for a suitable horse to bring from, say, Europe to Australia? Will, I'll start with you. Yeah, I, th- I think we're all looking for a horse that has at least, particularly when you're working on a budget, run to, you know, quite a high level at least once. Um, obviously, if you're trying to buy a horse on an upward trajectory, you know, so so too is the price. But um, one thing in Europe is, particularly with colts and geldings, is that there are a lack of geldings. So normally working off the the premise that there's 10 pounds in hand if if a horse hasn't been gelded um you know there's a lot of examples of horses that showed a bit early trained off and they just really need gelding so you know just as a general rule it's always encouraging to to see you know a profile of a horse and he's still a colt um as a starting point um just you know slightly left of center given you're trying to work on on a on a budget, um, but also particularly for here, I think if you're going to try and buy a twenty eight hundred meter horse over there, like that, that can lend itself just to a slow horse. So even horses that are shown form over sixteen hundred to two thousand meters, sort of makes them more adaptable for here, um, particularly the way we train, and you know as we've alluded to, the difference in training means that. You know, you're, you're stepping a horse out over 1,400 and building it up to that staying distance. So I think you still want to see a horse with a bit of speed and, um, yeah, some, something like a, a colt rather than a gelding that, that has been fully explored and already had the use of blinkers. So if, if, if a horse hasn't been gelded, hasn't had blinkers on um, and it hasn't been over, overly taxed, then it's quite a nice profile. Jim, what about your thoughts? Uh, yeah, look, I'd agree with Will. I think that's, that, that's very valid points. I'd be, um, I'd keep in mind who, you know, who I'm buying the horse from, which trains, um, trained the horse previously would be a, a pretty important consideration for me. I mean, I, I think there's a couple of different avenues that you can go down. I tend to, I mean, the ones that I've sort of focused in on trying to buy is the younger three or four year old horse that's had sort of up to 10 starts maybe 12 starts that's run as will said to a high level on at least one occasion and by that i mean you know you're not buying a horse that's won a stakes race but you're hoping to buy a horse that has a a rating you know say a, a british rating in the low 90s or high 80s and i think with that you you know you're turning to your client you're saying look you're going to buy a horse that will get off the plane and will be going to ramick or flemington for its first start won't be going to Kembla. so i guess that's you know where I probably focus my attention is is the the younger horses that aren't a proven state source, but you're hoping with with a change of scenery, a change of training, maybe a gelding operation and a set of blinkers, it's going to take it from being a benchmark horse 
when it arrives to going through the grades and becoming a stakes performer as a five-year-old. Um, the other way is to is to do the uh, the Annabelle Nisham fairy tale story in Biyazaki. Um, I mean, he's he's a phenomenon. Um, I guess for every one Zaki, there's a lot that that don't get anywhere near the level that he has. Um, but you're buying an older horse that has proven to be a very, very good old horse, and you're taking a chance that, again, a change of scenery, a trip across the world, um, and a freshen up here is is going to bring back its best form and improvement. Um, as I said, that those those are very hard to find, and, and in a lot of cases they don't work out, but they're the two sort of avenues. I tend to try and, I guess, de-risk a little bit by um, buying the younger younger horse that you hope is, is more progressive. I'd be very forgiving on pedigree. I think, you know, I bought a horse um, from Europe by a, a very obscure stallion called Master of the Horse who I'd never heard of and I don't think anyone else ever had either. Um, <laughs> I subsequently found out he ran third in English Derby for Coolmore and got sent to France as a jumping stallion. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm pretty forgiving on, on pedigree. I think you've seen the horse run. It's it's essentially a mature horse as a three- and four-year-old and, um you know, the, the, the proof is in the pudding rather than sort of what's on the tin. It's a great point and it's a question that comes up a lot, particularly, you know, when we're in media and we're talking about tried horses and whatnot, feedback channels through SMS machines and the like. You know, people often ask, I've never heard of this stallion before. You know, where has this horse come from? Do, do both of you guys just effectively rule a line through pedigree or is there a role to play looking at a young unexposed horse and saying, well, what did, what did dad actually do? What distance did he get to? Do you factor that sort of angle in with when it comes to pedigree and tried horses? Yeah, I mean, I certainly, certainly, um, certainly, uh, I guess, take note of the stallion, what the stallion did, what his progeny have done. Um, but it wouldn't be the kind of thing that would be the ultimate decision maker for me. I'd rather I'd rather emphasise the horse's form um, and probably the physique as well. I mean, you know, you'll hear everyone say they need to have good feet, they need to, you know, they need to be able to handle firm tracks, uh, all those types of things, which are all which are all very true. But I mean, there's been a lot of horses with soft track form and only soft track form in Europe that have come out here and excelled as well. So it's not a hard and fast rule, but I think. You know, certainly soundness is a big thing. We do tend to race on firmer tracks as a rule than they do over there. They've got to have good feet. They've got to x-ray well. They've got to have good knees. You know, you've got to, you've really got to do your due diligence, be very stringent. You're vetting um, because, you know, it's an expensive problem if you if you, if you you buy something that has a pre-existing condition. I've completely talked around your question there, Shark, but pedigree, yeah. yes, but not number one on the list. No, that's fine. That's fine, Jim. Hey, Will, tell me this. Why don't we see more race fillies and mares imported from, from overseas into Australia? Yeah, so it has been done uh, on occasion the last couple of years. Obviously, the last example was Conte Patero. You know, she had won at Royal Ascot on stakes races in America. And as, as an older mare one, two group ones out here and, you know, subsequently sold in, in America for a good deal of money. So it has been done and something I often ask myself, um, why don't we do it and why don't look at buying more fillies? Um, I think touching on the, the breeding landscape here, it would be more for fillies with a bit more speed, those sprinter miler types. I mean, Maccabi Diva was a Northern Hemisphere bred um, mayor that obviously won the, 
the Melbourne Cup three times. Um, but I think the value of a decent filly in Europe is quite substantial and it's quite a lot of risk uh, with acclimatising to come down here and race. Um, but, yeah, it, it is still a bit of um, unknown territory. Um, I wouldn't be against it um, for, for most people, but more so looking into the speed angle rather than the staying because, you know, the, the longer-term value of a staying mare out here is probably a lot less than what she's worth in Europe. Gentlemen, before I let you go, I need to touch on the conversation around the pattern. And the Federation put out a press release probably, you know, four weeks from the point of recording this podcast to go uh, put it out there in the media discussing why it's so important to uphold the pattern of group and listed races in Australia. Just want to get your thoughts as younger members of the Federation on the pattern. Uh, Will, where do you see it in its role? And and obviously, you know, the term pop-up races have been criticised by by some in recent weeks, but they're, they're a fact of life in Australian racing. How do you see pop-up races versus the pattern? Can they coexist? Do we need to overhaul the whole system? Yeah, I think it definitely needs reviewing. And, you know, the pattern was created. Uh, I touched on it just in an open ed on in the TDN a couple of weeks ago that it is it is a currency and it is a language, you know, as, as agents and breeders. You know, when you open a catalogue from any sale anywhere in the world, it is based on the pattern, you know, basically the weight of that black type on the page helps dictate the value of the horse in terms of the physical as well. And if we have too many races in Australia, the pop-up races are great. You know, the competition uh, drives progress. No matter what industry, you need competition. And obviously in, in Australia, the competition seems to have been between the states who haven't sat down since 2018 to, to really look at the pattern and I don't think anyone would argue the merits of the Everest or a race like the Everest being a group one in terms of quality is there. But I think there's a bit of give and take that has to happen. Um, you know, for every race like that, I don't think we can keep continuing to have more and more group one races. So supply and demand, we need to keep a cap on um, the number of pattern races and what the, those are we need to work together collectively as an industry, not just state-based, but, you know, across across state borders. Because um, over the last 15 years, there's been a at least a 20% decline in the number of falls, yet the number of stakes races has gone up 8%. So we've got less horses racing for more stakes races, and now we've got pop-up races on top of that. So I think in terms of the international landscape taking Australia seriously, we have to consider the weight of those stakes races and sort of make sure that um, as a, a racing jurisdiction, you know, the, the best races are included in the pattern and that may, might mean forgoing a couple of the, you know, current group ones, downgrading, you know, X, Y, Z, but the discussion sort of has to to continue and, um, you know, the board really needs to sit down and, and make a few changes, in my opinion. 
And Jim, that's the that's the point, and, and Will alluded to it there. It's not so much about state versus state and who's got this race and we want to upgrade that. It, it's as much about the international view of Australian racing and and how we sit and how our quality is measured on an international landscape, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's the patterns of international language that we speak. Um, but in saying that, you know, it definitely needs to be looked at here, but it needs to be looked at everywhere. I mean, I, I know that... It, a stakes race at Mountaineer Park is is like winning a race at, at you know Toowoomba, um, yeah. but it's still considered a stakes race. And if you went to the sales in America and you know you bought a mare that had won a listed race at Mountaineer Park, it's black type in the catalogue. Um, so it's not perfect here, but it's not perfect anywhere. Would be the first thing I would say. Um, I think there is absolutely a way for these races to coexist. I mean, you call them pop up races. The reality is, you know they're attracting some of the best fields that we we have in the country i mean the everest for example um all-star mile you know those sorts of races they're, they're, they're genuine group one fields now whether they should be allowed to be published as group ones in a sales catalog um is i guess debatable because you know they're restricted races but you know the magic millions is black print in a catalog and it's been a restricted listed race and it appears that way you know since its inception from my um, to my knowledge, and I think everyone understands the importance of the Magic Moons to your old race and the significance of it, even though it is RL in the catalogue. So there's definitely a way for these races to coexist. I don't think just adding them straight in the pattern is the way to go. I think, you know, I agree with Will, we have too many stakes races. We have too many races that are deemed to be Group 1s, Group 2s, Group 3s that aren't. Um, so it's not about just topping up certainly not topping up the races that we've created to add to the pattern, but it's about sort of reviewing the pattern, deciding what are genuine um, black print races and what level are they and um, making those, making those amendments. Jim, Will, it's been fantastic chatting. As I say, time flies when you're talking to interesting people and it's certainly been a, a case of that for this episode of the shortlist. I want to thank you both. For, for joining me and for shedding some light on not only your backgrounds, but the landscape for international bloodstock trade at the moment. Thank you very much. Thanks, Shark. Thanks, Shark. And just reminding our listeners, as always, if you're investing in, in bloodstock, if you are currently, if you're thinking of doing so, the Federation Bloodstock Agents Australia is the best place to start that journey. You can visit bloodstockagents.com.au, get in touch with an agent like Will or Jim or any other members there, and they'll help guide you on your journey. Until next time, thanks for listening.